Hello, I'm your host Gabby and you're listening to Diversity Alliance Talks, the show where we discuss and address those common and sometimes uncommon challenges that need prioritising and authentically working towards to have a real change that impacts society through the events we plan and deliver. To help us on the journey, we speak with diverse people who have lived experience of how inclusivity, equity and accessibility directly affects them in the workplace, events and beyond, as well as speaking with experts who work to make those communities' experiences better so that we can learn from them. Diversity Alliance Talks is about sharing ways for our listeners to develop awareness, knowledge, understanding and empathy, helping individuals and organisations to put in place authentic practices that instigate change. Events have the power to educate, change society and potentially change lives. So, let's go. Since losing his son Ross to suicide last year, Mike McCarthy has been trying to raise awareness for better mental health support. Incredible human being. He was kind, he was loving, devoted to his family, and actually was very funny. Uh, The kind of son that any parent would be proud of, and we were certainly extremely proud of him and remain proud of him to this day. He was a devoted family man. Uh, He loved his little son, Charlie, who's just three years old and enjoyed nothing better than to uh, play with Charlie. Uh, A news broadcaster has joined up with Steve Phillip. Steve's son, Jordan, took his own life in 2019. They've joined up and they've met the health secretary and they're now launching a campaign called Baton of Hope. There we go. Thank you for joining us again for our next episode as part of our Honouring Men Month campaign. I wanted to hop on just to warn you that this topic does contain references to suicide um, and suicide prevention. So if this is something that could be triggering for you, then please be aware. We will provide some links uh, to resources and support at the end of this video and also in the description and comments. We hope you get as much out of watching this interview as we got out of taking part in it. So once again, thank you for joining us. Month campaign where we're really shining a light on um, hearing lived experiences of the men in our communities, learning more about their challenges, what support is required, how we can come together so we can work more in unity and showing each other empathy so that people can just have a better I don't know, better opportunity to get the support I guess they need if it's required or support others as well because we feel we've got the tools and the and the skills to be able to do that and that's all about hearing lived experiences and stories and I first heard you speak um, at an event held by exclusive uh, exclusive collection sorry all about mental health and well-being and you know it was a really really powerful event and I don't think anybody who attended um, left feeling the same way and actually you spoke on the first day and actually quite early on in the event yeah in the morning um, and 
well, you know, the room just changed. Uh, your journey since then, which obviously we're going to go into a little bit more, I think really, really touched people and realised we don't talk about suicide enough because, I, in fact, I've never been into a talk where somebody has spoken openly about suicide from a personal perspective. You often can hear it from a charity perspective, but from a personal, and it was so powerful, which is right why I really wanted you on here today. So thank you so much. And I met your wife, Glenis, as well, who was lovely as well. I hope she is keeping well. <laughs> well thank you for inviting me. I'll, I'll pass those comments on to, to Glenis. She'll be delighted. Oh, good. Why don't we start off by... Um, just talk a little bit about your background. So you've had an amazing kind of career and journey and and it'd be great to hear a little bit about that um, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, not at all. Um, I spent 40 years as a reporter and presenter for BBC News and more latterly for, for Sky News. I was with Sky News for uh, 20 years and basically had a very varied career. I didn't specialise in any particular subject, but... Um, I was involved in the coverage of some very big stories, um, some of them very difficult, uh, dark and, and traumatic stories, uh, including the Hilton disaster, the Ariana Grande um, terrorist attack in Manchester, the Boston Marathon bombing in the States, uh, of the war in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so, yeah, it was a sort of very varied career and one that I sort of look back on with, with some pride. I've, I've made mistakes, um, but I've managed to escape relatively unscathed, I think. Um, and because of some of the stuff that I, I've done uh, in my life and, you know, some of the experiences that I'd had, uh, I considered myself to be quite a resilient character. Uh, I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that because yeah. you must have built up that resilience because to separate yourself from the environment you're in and the atrocities you're seeing, you've got to, like, yeah, how do you build that skill and resilience, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's something that you probably develop over time. Um, you know, that's not to say that you're not deeply affected uh, by what's happened. I mean, Hillsborough, for example, um, all of those years ago uh, in 1989. and you know that that stays with me still uh and i i, I made some friends with the uh, families that uh i got to know some of the bereaved families and you know proud to call some of them friends uh to this to this day and yeah you, you know you have to have a professional detachment i suppose in some ways it's it's similar to the emergency services that yeah. uh of course, you're affected, but you know you couldn't do your job properly if you didn't have or develop the sense of of professional detachment. And mm. I think, at least, I thought that that made me, in some ways, invincible. You know, ridiculous right. when I look back now. Um, but yeah, I I was looking forward to retirement. I'd enjoyed every minute of of my working life. Um, it was like a a golden ticket to me because it was the only thing that I'd wanted to do uh, mm -hmm. since the age of about 11. So I was very lucky in that respect. And um, yeah. And when you retired, how did you feel when you retired, Mike? So do you, did any of those kind of, I guess, stories you'd covered or experiences you had, did you find yourself reflecting on them more? Or do you think you kind of reflected them 
on them at the time and moved moved on at the time or did anything kind of catch up with you in that sense i don't think yeah you've always got the memories obviously you know and they'll always be there and um, from time to time i did reflect if i saw something on the news that was related or you know anything that sort of triggers a, a, a memory and um i often used to think about the the people who I met, and this is one of the great things about journalism, and you know, a, a lot of journalists will, will tell you this, that you do get to meet some very inspiring people. And I think I was particularly um, drawn to people who, against all the odds, were fighting for something that they believed in and went on fighting despite, you know, maybe being told repeatedly, you can never win, you know, you'll never win, this this will go on forever, it'll destroy your lives and, and all mm -hmm. the rest of it. And yet, you know, it's great to see that there are people out there so full of, you know, human strength and spirit and true warriors who, uh, you know, giving a lot of themselves to make things better for other people even though they're aware in some ways that it's you know maybe even sort of damaging their own quality of life or whatever so uh that was to me you know looking back that was uh the highlight is is to sort of come into contact with those people and, and to feel the inspiration that you take from from people like that yeah okay thank you for sharing that and so you kind of touched on you retired <laughs> so you retired and I don't know what you were doing with your life exactly but um what yeah actually what did you do start doing in your spare time out of interest did you turn to golf um, I, didn't, yeah, no, I didn't know never golf um sorry to any golfers but uh no I'm not really into golf but uh, I, I tried to get, keep my mind ticking over I did the odd, odd bit of media training I did some uh, lecturing for broadcast journalism students and uh, you know uh, just just the odd day here and there and um, but otherwise you know it's uh, much as I enjoyed the job yeah. um, I was I, you kind of know you know when you reach a certain age I think that you, you know when you're ready yeah uh, I just sort of felt that it was sort of uh, my time to sort of you know wave goodbye and thank you for the memories and all, all that nice um but then the pandemic hit lockdowns came um yeah and I think obviously it was a challenging time for many people lives were lost and we were in our homes unable to quite often see those that we loved and and cared about and then sadly for you this is kind of when tragedy kind of struck I guess and if you're happy to share what happened um, and tell us about your son, Ross, that would be great. Yeah, um, it was uh, on February the 21st last year. Um, and now, such a short time you know, ago. Looking back, yeah, um, and in some ways it feels like no time at all. And in other ways, you know, I don't know, time passes slowly, but um, yeah, I sometimes think back to, you know, what was going through my mind when I closed my eyes and went to bed on the 20th of, of February, you know, did I thank my lucky stars, you know, did I count my blessings for the, for the uh, good fortune that I, I'd had, you know, both in terms of the career and also, um, um, and more importantly, the, the great family, mm. um, you know, I've been sort of with my 
wife Gladys now for sort of 40 years and we've got um, three children say <laughs> mm. uh, so I, I thought that I was uh, that, that, that there was little out there that could could hurt me and um, the phone went at uh, half past three around about half past three in the morning and it was my son's fiance who had called to say that she'd found Ross in the hallway of their home and the ambulance crew were there and that she'd call us as soon as they'd got any news but that it wasn't looking good and I suppose we you know at that moment just sort of you know clung to hope and, and sort of refused to believe that that could be happening and um, sure enough we got a call five minutes later to say that uh, Ross had died so you know we packed our bags and drove through the night it was a, a couple of hours to where yeah. excuse me where Ross lived and um, yeah don't don't remember much about the, the journey I know it was raining and it was a sort of awful February night and um, we got there and uh, it was hard because Ross had been taken away. So, you know, we couldn't see him. I, I, I don't know, maybe in some ways that's a, that was a, a blessing, but mm. I just, you know, felt his loss as soon as we got to the house. Mm. And um, I walked in and on his sideboard, there was a picture of Ross and I uh, when he was a boy. Mm. And, uh, We'd gone to a, like an animal petting farm and he'd got a little little duckling in his, in his hand. <laughs> and next to that picture in the frame was a very similar one um, of Ross uh, and his son, Charlie, who was three at the time. And Charlie was holding a duckling as well. Wow. And just ah, that, you know, I, I fell to my knees. I, I was just, you know, um, just overwhelmed by... The, the the loss uh, yeah. just, just and it felt like um it felt like nothing I'd ever felt before you know, mm. obviously now when I'm back I think it was like I don't know it's like falling through just dark space um and sort of feeling that you would never ever reach the ground mm. um and you know and um yeah that's that's where everything changed it's horrific and yeah I mean I can you know feel feel the emotion now you know from you and it's it's still very new and obviously it's going to remain you know part of you you know for the rest of your life moving forward and I know that you were you're obviously doing things because he actually had left a message for you and the family right um of well actually I'll let you explain rather than me explain so he left it he left a letter is that right yeah, he left a, a long letter. Um, it was taken away by the police and um, it took us a while to, to, to get it back, which which was difficult. Um, mm. You know, we felt as though we were sort of almost, well, we were pleading to, to get the letter back because in a moment like that, you know, knowing that he'd written a letter to us, mm. um, it, it was hard to to not to be able to read it because that was, you know, he was speaking to us. That was his voice. And um, anyway, we eventually got the letter back and um, he spoke to each one of us in turn, including his little boy, Charlie, um, um, and just asked Charlie to be brave, 
and to be anything that he wanted to be in life, um, to the family in general, he said, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. But well, what he meant by that was that he'd suffered from severe depression for over 10 years. And again, he, he was a fighter. He was um, a wonderful, loving son, um, loved his own family. And um, yeah, it, we just, you know, um, couldn't believe him. I look back to think that he said to us, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. Um, and yeah. sorry, uh, you know, I was just going on to explain that uh, after 10 years of suffering from depression, he went to the NHS to ask for therapy and he was put on a six month waiting list and he died two weeks into that wait. But the, that line just sort of in the letter mm. jumped out at me and I was just, I don't know, it's just the feeling that somebody who knew that their time had come and that they weren't going to be part of this life any longer. Mm. For that person, <clears throat> excuse me, for that person to recognise that there was a cause to be championed beyond their own life in a world that they wouldn't be part of. Yeah. It's just moved me so much. And um, when I got back on my feet, I sort of uh, determined to do whatever I could to honour uh, what was effectively his, his dying wish. So uh, yeah. as a journalist, I, I, you know, I knew how to <laughs> do research. So I threw myself into uh, research mm. and found some shocking things that... Um, you know, I hadn't come across even as a journalist for 20 years who covered just about every subject going, or that's how it felt anyway, mm. um, that I hadn't come across this huge silent pandemic. Yes. And I realised that it was the biggest killer of, of young people in this country under 35. All yeah. of that has some potential. Not oh. COVID, not cancer, not road accidents, not drugs, suicide. And it, again, it struck me immediately. Mm. Why aren't we talking about this? It's it's as though there's some invisible gas out there and people are falling to the floor and we're just stepping over them and pretending yeah. we haven't noticed this, this awful, you know, um, mm -hmm. stain on, on, on society. Um, had my, and, uh, Mike, sorry to interrupt you, had, um, was this the first time that Ross had kind of reached out or asked for support or because you mentioned a 12 year struggle there, had there been, I mean, when did he first share this with you and the family and, you know, what, yeah, what happened on this journey? Was it really kind of the last part where it was like, I definitely need the help now? How did that all kind of come about and come to fruition? No, we had been backwards and forwards to GPs and right. uh, counsellors. And, you know, um, we talked at length about his, his mental health. And actually, in Christmas, the previous Christmas, so that's sort of Christmas 2020, we went to visit him. Uh, it was during lockdown, so uh, we even stayed outside. Ross and Charlotte and Charlie were in the uh, conservatory that Ross had, had built, and we stood outside. And uh, we would normally have stayed, but we couldn't stay because of COVID. So that was the last time we saw him, and we celebrated the progress that he'd made with his mental health. Uh, it, we all agreed. We were talking, you know, reflecting on the year that had just passed, and we all you know, agreed that the best thing about 2020 
was that he'd seen such a marked improvement in his mental health. Yeah. And um, you know, that's that's the last time uh, we saw him because of uh, because of COVID. Um, so, you know, we spoke at length. It wasn't, you know, uh, for some families, it comes completely out of the blue. And, and mm -hmm. my heart goes out to anybody in this situation, but especially, you know, if if you had no inkling. And that's, you know, not uncommon for people to just leave, leave no note, no explanation, no record of uh, mental poor health. Mm. Um, but Ross, you know, was different in that respect that he was somebody who could talk to us at least who could talk to his family about his uh, mental illness so but the thing is he got very good at pretending he wanted to protect the people that he loved he wanted to protect the people around him so he pretended to be happy and um, the night before he died we could see that he was very down again right. uh, so the sudden decline since christmas and um we spoke to him uh, on FaceTime and um, he just said that he was very tired and he said to his mum, I'll be okay, I'll go for a run in the morning and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, we think he must have known at that moment that, that he wouldn't be with us by the following morning. Right. It's okay, Mike. We appreciate you sharing this with us, so just take your time. Okay, I mean, the reason that I do share it is because, you know, I found out that, you know, we were far from alone, that there are hundreds of thousands of mums, dads, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters out yeah. there who've been through, you know, a similar experience. Mm. And um, I desperately, you know, kind of on Ross's behalf, wanted to reach out to them and and. I, I saw that the charitable sector, certainly in suicide prevention, looked mm. very fragmented. There were some great charities, there are some great charities out there, big and small, who are doing mm. superb work. Uh, mm. But I think they tend to operate in silos. So yeah. one of the things that I, I tried to uh, determine to do also was to sort of do my little bit, really, to create some kind of unity bring the charities together to speak with one voice um because i always say you know politicians won't like this but <laughs> as a journalist i always used to think you don't talk to the politicians you scream at them um, and yeah. what I'm now finding that we have to come together because if this isn't one of the greatest mental health crises facing this country i don't know what is you know? Agreed. And if, this, Agreed. if this loss uh is not being recognized but by politicians i would mm -hmm. just plead to, to any that might be watching this that you know please use your influence suicide is preventable we can change this everybody agrees that it can be prevented so my question is and the question uh, of the charity that I've, I've set up called baton of hope is if suicide is preventable why aren't we preventing them yeah these Statistics have stagnated for more than 20 years. They rise a bit, they fall a bit, they rise a bit, they fall a bit. But basically, we, we haven't changed. What we're doing isn't working. We need to challenge the status quo, take a different look, shift that prism and look at things in a di dif different way. And um, yeah. And, and now, now, I was going to say I was, I'm going into rant mood. So no, quite, <laughs> I like rant. Right don't worry about that. 
<laughs> well, it needs to be. It needs to be heard. It needs to be said. And it's, uh, it's as a matter of urgency, actually. You know, we're not messing around here because, you know, you know, some of us are grieving and it's, it's incredibly important. You said it's the biggest kid of like young people at, at the moment. Well, yeah, for a long time. So but how we're not talking about this to me just seems absolutely horrific. And what I was going to say was, um, am I making this up? I feel like I might be making this up, but I felt like there was a specific minister. Was there a minister for, I can't remember the title, whether it was for mental health or something like, have I made that up? I'm sure I heard something. Yeah, there was a minister for suicide prevention who was Nadine Doris. And if I've got this right, oh. Gillian Keegan took over and the title was dropped. The suicide prevention minister part of it was 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 dropped. Yeah. Um, I went to see Gillian Keegan, had a good conversation with her. Um, I went to see Sajid Javid, the then health secretary. I think we've had what is it three health secretaries since the what and, and this is what I mean about the, the the politics it's not necessarily the people uh sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but it's the the, the system too on the day that you know we had a private conversation with with Sajid Javid uh and for the first time he talked publicly about the loss of his own brother to suicide and announced a 10-year suicide prevention plan mm. that plan has now been parked along with lots of other uh, bills and strategies mm. plans that were going through uh, I think um, uh, an online protection uh, bill for children yeah as far as that's yeah. been parked um, and talk about politics getting in the way of progress. This is something that there is a lot of cross-party support for. Mm. So why isn't there a mechanism in which these longer-term uh, uh, issues with large cross-party support can be protected and are not just battered away at the whim of political leadership campaigns and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah, I, 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 I do think, you know, um, we're not angry and there's, there's no blame or anything, but we are seeking change, radical change, and mm -hmm. uh, through Baton of Hope, we aim mm -hmm. to challenge these politicians uh, mm -hmm. and ask them what they're doing uh, to in, uh, improve suicide prevention. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, let, let's, let's see the results. Tell, tell us more then about the Baton of Hope. Tell us, yeah, tell us all about it. So um, we want to, yeah, yeah. want to hear what, the, what your mission is and then how, how we can support your mission, to be honest. Yeah, thank you. You may have noticed that I've dropped it into the conversation a few times there already. Good, good. <laughs> it needs to be in the conversation. Um, yeah, one day I was talking to uh, some other people, including a, a good friend who lost his son, Jordan, to suicide, Steve Phillip, who runs the Jordan Legacy um, in, in Jordan's name. And uh, we were talking, you know, about our sort of um, mutual experiences and, and we were saying that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you can't, you know, there's no single issue connecting all of the suicides. It's always for very complex and different reasons. And mm. I certainly don't agree with that. Uh, you know, the, the, the loss of hope connects every suicide what, whatever the circumstances are mm. the, the you know it, it comes from 
a complete loss of of hope so you yeah. know we got talking and we've just decided what what can we do to help restore hope in the world that we're living in at the moment where you know we've just tumbled out of the covid crisis you know we're heading into a deep economic recession there are you know dark murmurs about the possibility of nuclear war children are growing up where the very survival of the planet is being questioned really for the the, the, the first time uh, in personally history. i feel like this time is a real time where people are needing support actually the amount of people i have spoken to really of really finding it a struggle the past three years are really really struggling and to move those mechanisms and those support mechanisms and, and take them away at during this time is just it, it shouldn't be happening it should we should be increasing support and looking at this more not kind of you know hiding it in the back room and waiting till there's a better time to deal with it this is a time when people need that support so sorry do carry on no no you're absolutely right absolutely right i think you know this is the time we can't afford to go on wasting lives like this and i think it goes through every sector of society we've been talking about politics but in education in the yeah. media you know in the charitable sector um we need a different approach and a different way forward we need to offer hope by highlighting what is out there and mm. showing best practice and talking about why it's working uh, yes. and whether we can, you know, use those shining examples to further the cause of, of suicide prevention. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's. Uh, I think it was uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu who said that we've got to stop fishing people out of the river and go upstream to find out why they're jumping in. And there's, uh, you know, there's so much truth in that. And again, this is why I think education is important. And it's one of the questions that we're asking is, you know, where are the conversations in the classrooms? Where are the lessons? Where are the lectures in universities and, and colleges? You know, where's the political uh, debate where's the public discourse uh, mm -hmm. on all of this because one thing's for sure unless we can talk about it uh, and smash the stigma and normalize uh, what what is is going on if that's the, the the right word the sooner that we can get to grips with how we solve the problem and we're yeah. still talking about committing suicide you know mm -hmm. it's a it's afraid and i'm not you know um i'm not a stickler for 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 uh for things like that in general you know but i recognize now why that is quite hurtful um mm. and it's because it it harks back to a time more than 60 years ago when suicide was considered to be illegal that illegal status was lifted in 1961 and here we are more than 60 years later still using the language of the dark ages ross mm. wasn't perfect but he didn't commit a crime no uh, in my opinion he didn't commit a sin either so you know the, there are questions for the church and for for all of us we all have a responsibility whether you are at the highest level of government or whether it's just sending an extra text to your mate to say how are you really after your talk actually literally i think a lot of people did after your talk um when i obviously first saw you speak in person i think a lot of people went outside on their phones or during that day or that evening messaged people they were concerned about and that's that's how it touched me and i was like i have to pay more attention 
to my friends and their behaviors and just noticing noticing more you know just noticing if anything's changed and not being afraid to kind of address it and sort of say well you're looking you know looking a bit tired lately or you know you're not eat you know you're not eating as much when we're going out or you're drinking more whatever it is and and having the very bravery I guess to speak up when I if I do notice changes and it was it was you and your talk that kind of made me bring that brought that into my consciousness consciousness more and be more, more aware about that if that makes sense yeah no and no, that's that's gratifying to hear and, and thank you um it's it's about talking i think and it's about listening and uh, i wanted to do something practical as well something sort of hands-on um so i helped to establish uh, two branches it's a national charity a fantastic charity called talk club uh which as the name suggests is a talking group for for men and um my home city of, of Sheffield, uh, I helped along with others to establish two talking groups uh, based at the Sheffield United Stadium and mm. at the Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday Stadium. And <laughs> actually, it's been great because, yeah, well, the reason we had to do both is that, you know, everybody agrees <laughs> that mental health is more important even than football. Yay! But there are <laughs> Wednesday supporters who won't go to Bramall Lane and there are... <laughs> United supporters who won't go to Hillsborough so we had to open to uh, and it's uh, you know if I can do a, a quick plug there if you, see that, <laughs> plug, plug, plug. Um, you know it's a real stroke of genius like kind of doing these in football clubs because I think like people associate football with masculinity and being masculine means not talking about your emotions not sharing being you know tough and all that man up rubbish that was you know well we're kind of like getting moving away from that that now thank god so to do in those locations with you know fans i think is just a stroke of genius personally yeah i think you know as men we kind of have to take responsibility that we've been living a lie uh you know do we really think that rugby players don't cry that boxers don't cry that football players don't cry you know who, who was it that put that phrase together strong silent type yeah i mean please. why do you put those two words together strong and silent i think mm -hmm. you know I, I always cite people like tyson fury who's proven himself to be you know one of the uh, fittest guys physically on the, the planet uh, but he's also somebody who has been brave and not afraid to express his vulnerability in terms of his mental well-being and to accept you know that vulnerability isn't weakness that's a thing for a lot of men that really is the the problem that we um, that, that vulnerability makes you less of a less of a man and last night actually at talk club at, at Sheffield Wednesday and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this we had one of the first team players uh Will Vaux uh, who who joined in talk club is the first footballer in Sheffield to we've had former footballers but first sort of um football playing at the moment to to come and join us at talk club and he was an absolute inspiration so open so transparent mm -hmm. uh, and just sort of joined in with with the rest of us and I, I I just encourage anybody who's got a position of you know uh influence and responsibility like that to if they can to to use it to promote this because there's a long long way to go mm -hmm. uh, but you're absolutely right I think you know if you put mental health over the door uh, there are probably you know not so many men who would walk through that door if you yeah. put 
football with a bit of mental health thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's nothing to do with football, actually. It's just that we happen to be at the football stadium. Uh, but, you know, it's I've seen how men can change by opening up rather than bottling up. And it's it's great to see. It's amazing. Uh, I, I was having a conversation with another one of our contributors, um, Lal, actually, and we were talking about the events industry. Um, and I know in every sector and in every industry and in every community, the, the, the very similar problems where there's not really places for men to go and, and speak openly. Um, and even he was saying, I'd love to be able to set up something within the events community where, you know, where men can come and talk and come and share. We feel like there's lots of other communities for, for other people, and especially when we look at kind of like, um, if we look at the LGBTQ plus community, for example, if we look at people of colour, because the focus is very much on that sort of um, inclusiveness at the moment, you know, there's a lot of focus on that. And we're forgetting about everybody. To be inclusive, everybody needs to have the same support and opportunities to, to share. So he wanted to set something like that up. So I'm going to get him inspired by your talk club. And we might, might not steal the name, but... <laughs> But certainly inspired by that. Uh, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, I mean, equality and inclusivity, uh, you know, obviously applies to every single one of us. And again, it sort of goes back to the point about responsibility. Whoever you are, whatever uh, background you're, you're, you're from or that you live in, uh, we, we can all get involved in this. And I suppose that's one of the core messages of Baton of Hope. It's the universality of it that's that's actually designed into the baton itself and uh, if you'll allow me to, to to tell you a little bit about the actual baton um, brilliant i was introduced to a company called thomas light who based in london and are goldsmiths and silversmiths to the royal family and you know they offered to make the actual baton and they just released the final design and personally i think it's beautiful it's heavy with mm. symbolism um and i'll send you some pictures but it's it's basically the it's got a central lattice work which when you look closely depicts people holding each other aloft in a circular community and then an upward spiral everything's sort of directional in the baton an upward spiraling gold and, and silver uh to um a, a, an opening that contains the semicolon, which, as you may know, is increasingly becoming a symbol for people who've tried to take their own lives but have survived and are now grateful and, and examples of how, you know, you can come through this period of darkness. People, people do do that. I didn't know um, that, actually. Yeah, no, no, I didn't know it until, until relatively recently, certainly not until after we, we lost Ross. Mm. Uh, but it's there because it's, you know, as a semicolon is in a sentence, it's indicative of the fact that there's more to come. This sentence isn't over. You know, this life isn't over. There's hope. Uh, there's a future. Um, mm. And we see that as a beautiful symbol mm. that we've uh, that we've kind of stolen uh, for Baton. We've had, we haven't stolen. We haven't stolen. <laughs> How heavy we've actually stolen. is it, though? <laughs> I don't know. It won't be made until next year. Uh, so it's, it's got a very sturdy handle, uh, mm. which again is all wrapped into the sort of symbolism of it. 
um, and it's been designed. Uh, the, the designers are fantastic, and the, the craftsmen and women at Thomas Light are fantastic. I've been down to visit them, and you know, I'm just sort of full of uh, admiration for them. And uh, they they believe in the project, which is so important to us. Mm. That they believe in what what we're doing, um, and so that it's going to carry a lot of meaning. Of course. And from a, from a practical perspective, you have like, isn't the baton going to take this journey um, through the UK? And what's going to happen with these kind of, or the, I mean, I know obviously you're in planning stages, et cetera, but what is the plan to kind of have these hotspots of conversation, education, how does the baton come into that? Right. Well, the, the baton, it's, it's not a sort of journey in the sense of a, a race or, or a walk, but we will take the baton from city to city. Uh, we've got, you know, we're hoping it, it can become an annual event. But in the first year, we've got a two week window starting on June the 25th next year, launching in Glasgow. And then we're going to all of the capitals, Edinburgh, Cardiff, Belfast, London, and lots of other places in between Newcastle, Manchester, Brighton, you know, all over the UK, Cardiff. Um, and we will end in London with a march from Trafalgar Square to the House of Parliament. And we're inviting bereaved families and friends uh, to join us at the head of the march. And anyone who wants to join in uh, with us to, uh, you know, not only let your voices be heard, but to use the voices of all of those people who are no longer here to use their own and speak on their behalf to tell Parliament that, you know, we, the country, have taken responsibility. This is a baton. Now we pass it to you. You take responsibility. Um, so, and, and as we go around the country, we want to highlight some of the great work that's going on out there that other people are doing. We want to open up a conversation. We want to smash the stigma. We are campaigning for practical change. Um, yeah. In, yeah. in 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 many many areas that we've we've spoken about um mm. so yeah that that's that's the dream and, well uh, you know well, we have an audience of event kind of professionals and planners and organizers who that's who i work with so i mean if there was any support that you needed what sort of like what would be really useful help right now and you know leading up to yeah, the launch of this event. And then actually during the event as well, I guess that, you know, you're going to need support and venues and I don't know, have you got yeah. that? We're, we're a startup uh, charitable initiative started from a blank canvas this year. So, uh, you know, we don't have much money. So um, if, if people can help us to raise money or if people can uh, yeah. volunteer on the ground in some of these cities, uh, we're asking people to lobby their MPs to, uh, you know, take an interest in this this campaign. Um, lots of things. We've got people volunteering to do all kinds of things to take the baton uh, into the air, to fly it, to take it, to dive with it, to <laughs> carry it on horseback, to <laughs> go in a hydroplane with it. Um, you name it, you know, the, the, every, just about every form of transport you can think of. So, and we've had hundreds of people coming on board and registering their interest on our website. So, uh, if I can, you know, make a plea to people if they do get a second to have a look at our website and register their interest uh, if they'd like to. We'll put a link on there. We put a link That's in the notes and everything. Don't worry about that. <laughs> 
That's great. And then they'll get the sort of monthly newsletter, which will sort of talk a bit more about how people can uh, be involved. Because, as I say, it's a universal thing. We want as many people to share uh, in in the, the hope that's provided by the Baton of Hope. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, sorry, that's, the, that's the end of my sales talk. Now. No, it wasn't very salesy at all. I thought you were very uh, uh, reserved. <laughs> I'd have been like, right, I need this, 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 and this. If anyone can help with this, I'll have a little well, shop for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, what we're hoping to do is put on a bit of a road show. Um, we're trying not to impose our uh, model, if you like, on each city, because each city is different and there's yeah. different talent within a different different cities. There are different charities, there are different cultures, and we want to draw in all of those uh, cultures and get a, a feel for what people want to do. We've got a lot of work to do. And, you know, there will be things like all of the logistics involved, you know, the organising of the, the event management, yeah. uh, all of that. Uh, yeah. We're working as fast as we can to bring people on board who can help us. Um, I saw that so, Elizabeth Heron of um, Orange Door is um, one of your kind of supporters. Would she be helping like the logistical side of things? Or I haven't caught up with her about that, but... I noticed all yeah, that. No, Orange Door have sort of joined us as, as um, critical friends and advisors on a marketing front. Uh, so, you know, we're looking forward to sort of working with, with them. But we're, at this stage, we're still throwing open the doors and saying to anybody, if, if you think you have anything to offer, we will find a place for you. So, yeah, please make contact with us. Fantastic. Well, thank you. As I said, we'll put any links um, that you share with us so that people can reach out or learn more about Baton of Hope. Is there is there anything else that you, any other message that you would like to leave our viewers and listeners with as they move forward over the next few weeks and into the new year? I think, you know, one of the, the core principles of, of Baton of Hope is just uh, compassion. And uh, we're hoping that we can encourage people in all walks of life just to you know a little bit of compassion goes a long way um, and although I've mentioned talk club before uh, we it's called talk club obviously but it's also listening club and, and and again we hope that through that compassion that people will listen and I think we need to change our mindset a, a little bit at least you know for example just in the use of language when we talk about people who self-harm um, being um, attention seeking if we think of it in terms of attention needing you know imagine how much pain you have to be in mentally to physically harm yourself uh, in the way that people do let's let's see that as attention needing rather than attention seeking let's just sort of move the prism a little bit um, I mean we've just quite rightly remembered the soldiers who who died uh fighting for their country that's absolutely right but again just change that prism slightly suicide kills more soldiers than armed conflict and combat yes. and then yes. this is one thing that we don't remember and we don't reflect upon um yeah. and that's not to take away from the sort of you know the, the deep importance of of remembrance um each year but again i think if we just start to change our outlook slightly 
uh, towards mental health. I think we can make a, a huge amount of progress together. Agreed. And you're so right about that use of language as well in that there's enough and well, I, I don't think there's shame, but there's enough perceived shame anyway, I guess, for individuals um, with whatever they're kind of needing to do to comfort themselves in that in that time. And then for health professionals, I guess, and people who offer guidance or anyone really to be using that kind of language, I think adds to the shame. We, as you said, we need to smash the stigma. We need to move away from the shame element of that because I should. They, I don't even know why shame is included in this conversation, you know. But that language for me invokes sh shame, and I, yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, I, I, no. Again, you're absolutely right, and I think you know some of the agencies out there, some of the professional bodies um you know nobody got out of bed on that morning of the 21st of february you know and decided to make a bereaved family's life even harder that's that's not the way that humans work um yeah. but i think when when you confront the um the, the the body i'm thinking again for example like the the police service and the difficulties we had their computers weren't speaking to the coroner's office computers so you get this sort of glacial feeling that you know you're fighting bureaucracy and you're fighting some monolith you know and um mm. like again you know uh with the police and i have a lot of uh personal support for the police uh you know i've had uh, police officers in, in my family and they have an, an extremely difficult job to do and they're exposed on a regular basis to suicide and having to deal with the aftermath but i think it's the body as a as a whole that sometimes yeah. we just need to change uh, how it operates because if ever you need help in this world believe me you need help um when you're faced with a situation like that and not hurdles it's yeah. as simple as well thank you mike thanks for your time um our time has come to an end now and i appreciate you sharing your story with us um and as you said kind of sharing that there is a glimmer of hope and that you're working towards bringing hope around this theme and this message and you know i hope people do get involved in the baton of hope which i'm sure they will um and that it's extremely successful and it's much needed and i think it's fantastic that you and you know your family and your supporters are driving this mission forward um so congratulations and, and thank you for doing that for everyone for all of us you know thank you well thank you thanks for your interest and, and thanks for inviting me to talk about it it's much appreciated well, take care see you soon If you'd like to find out more about how Diversity Alliance can support your business through its EDI journey, email gabby at diversityalliance.co.uk. If you'd like EDI news and resources delivered directly to your inbox, head to our website, diversityalliance.co.uk, where you can register. Just a note to say, you can also catch these interviews on our YouTube channel. Just search for Diversity Alliance, where you'll also be able to view the episode transcript.
And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, do leave us a review. Thank you.